You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey guys, Aaron Broverman here just to tell you about our sponsor, Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula is our original sponsor. They're the OG sponsor. They were here in the very beginning when we were just a fledgling comic book show done out of some guy's bedroom. But they have some amazing product for you. Just go down to their store at 3456 Young Street and you can get your role-playing games. You can get your comic books, of course. You can get your tabletop games. They have everything. We got Pokemon cards. We've got Star Wars miniatures. They just have everything that you could possibly want. Plus, Leon, their owner, is an amazing dude. He uh, He's very honest and uh, he'll get you everything you need. And uh, they have an amazing new space there at 3456 Young Street. So you got to go down. You got to check out their merchandise. Sometimes they have weekly live role-playing games, some Magic the Gathering stuff. They're doing championships all the time. You've probably seen a lot of their stuff on our social media because we try to promote them any way we can because without them we wouldn't be able to put this podcast together for you so please if you're local to Toronto and even if you're not look them up at www.harryt.com and uh, check them out at 3456 Young Street and tell them Aaron sent you Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fan people! Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Right now, we are live at the Toronto Comic Con. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast needs met. With me today is Solgood Sam. You probably know Solgood from back in the day. He used to work at Marvel at DC in the 90s. Under Max Douglas. And uh, he was known as Max Douglas back then. Obviously, Solgood is a nom de plume, right? Mm -hmm. So... Right now, these days, he's doing some independent publishing. He's here at the Toronto Comic Con promoting uh, Dracula, Son of the Dragon, uh, his book Revolver, and uh, Dream Life, a late life coming of age. He's working on volume two of Dream Life, and uh, he's working on something too uh, in Revolver, to be serialized in Revolver, called A Bastard's Tale, which is about his father. So I want to get into that. Um, Sequential has also expanded from uh, the online Canadian comics news and culture site that it is into Sequential Magazine, the Canadian Independent Comic Books Magazine. The editor is Brendan Montgomery from the Canadian Comics Wiki, who we've had on the show before, and uh, Sequential has sponsored the podcast before, so I have to thank uh, Solgood and Brendan for that as well. So, uh, how are you today? Pretty good. It's hectic at a convention as usual. It is totally hectic. Uh, He just did an amazing sketch for somebody uh, just before we went on the air. Uh, 
it was it was exactly what what the customer looked like. It was awesome. Thank you. That's that's a uh, everyone everyone time someone buys Dreamlife, I do those now, and it was sort of like a self improvement challenge. I wanted to and get my likenesses better and faster, so I put a book plate in it that has a portrait window. Do you feel like you're getting faster? After 500 drawings, yeah, it's definitely gotten better and faster. I actually, it kind of goes back to, I got hired once for Just for Laughs to do caricatures and portraits at the festival, and I was surprised to find that I was actually a lot more difficult than I anticipated. <laughs> right. <laughs> so like, all right, I need to work on that. Uh, and Dream Life came out pretty good in terms of likenesses. It's always a challenge in comics, but it needed work. Right, Someone right. Wants to buy a postcard. So I want to start at the beginning. Uh, where were you born originally? In Toronto. Uh, so actually, right near here. I actually grew up in Kensington Market, awesome. uh, and then uh, my mother moved to the beaches, and then I was here until seven ninety-seven, and nice. then I basically fleed when the, the the merger happened and moved to Montreal. <laughs> wow, wow. So when you when you were a child. How did you originally get into uh, comics and, and right. the geeky stuff that we all love now? Well, the before-mentioned father okay. was a comics reader, and he had lots of underground comics, but typically a stack in his bathroom. Uh, so it was probably like, many of them were probably not appropriate for children, but I was reading those anyway. Uh, so yeah, he, my dad was into comics. My mother was an, also an artist, a professional artist. Nice. So drawing was kind of always around. And I actually didn't really anticipate making them, but I read them and started collecting them in my teens. Uh, and then job-wise, it didn't really become a serious thing until I'd already chosen, I was actually, I wanted to be a scientist. Wow, uh, scientist. But I, I'm dyslexic and it was the 80s and they were really not good about encouraging people to overcome these things then. So they right. just said, no chance, buddy. Uh, what, kind of, what kind of scientist were you going to be? I hadn't decided, but I, I had a bias towards aeronautical engineering and space. Okay. But uh, they, I pretty much was told, no chance. Right. So I didn't really go for that. And then I ended up uh, picking an arts, a rich arts school called Wexford CI. And the first week in there, my homeroom was a print shop with Mr. Marsh and a guy who's here. Uh, George Todorowsky oh, yes. uh, was in my homeroom and I walked into the homeroom and he was working on comic pages on one of the light tables for a book called Synthetic Assassin Wow! Uh, which I still have a copy I'm gonna have to embarrass him one day with that so he was you know we were high school kids he had gotten picked uh, hooked in by a, a writer who was a fan who wanted to put their own books out during the black and white boom and he was drawing that and it's kind of the first time I put the in together in my head that that's a thing I could do I like comics and also this is close to around when Watchmen came out. I'm not sure if it was like right then, but I also I kind of cemented because I wasn't so keen on doing mainstream superheroes, but that idea of something along the direction of where Sandman and Watchmen and all that stuff the was going. Yeah. Type, yeah. Or just more complicated stories that weren't just adventure superhero fantasy stuff. Right. Um, so that got me excited about it. So I kind of went from early in high school gung-ho for comics. That's awesome. What was your growing up life like? I mean, I, I know I mentioned off the top that your your story about your father is called a bastard's tale. Yeah. Uh, so, is there a reason for that? So it's bastards, not plural. Okay. Okay. Uh, or, okay. or no, I said, sorry, ba bastards, plural, not possessive. Oh, okay. So no, no apostrophe. Okay. And it's because there's two of us. So okay. I am a bastard, okay. as in fatherless. And he was called a bastard a lot. Okay. Uh, <laughs> he was um, a bit of a counterculture hero to his friends. He died when I was eight in a motorcycle accident. Uh, before that, he was involved in Rochdale College as the 
the vice president of the student council for a while and head of security, uh, which is ironic because he's also the biggest drug dealer on campus. Wow. Uh, and he was involved in kind of local politics and local counterculture, underground culture, and, and across the aforementioned drug dealing, mostly pot and mushrooms and things like that. Uh, my memory of him was entertaining folks who'd come to the house, everyone from yuppies to, to sketchy characters who'd come and buy a gram and smoke at the table and he'd do their charts and psych, psych profile them and help them with their problems. Wow. Um, he was a very interesting, kind of fiery, difficult character. Uh, but for me, I guess because he'd had a difficult, from what I'm, I, it's interesting because it's been part of a process of learning about who he was as an adult because I didn't only knew the, you know, the parental version of the person. Uh, so as an adult, I started researching his background and actually learning about where we came, where he came from, and where we came from, um, and I was surprised to discover that he had had problems as a kid growing up, and there was kind of just conflict with his father and issues, and a little bit of violence, uh, and more trouble than I was even begin to be aware of. Right. And so I, what I kind of gotten from that is that he, I guess, he sort of decided to be the the best parent he could be with me. So even though he was doing all this stuff, he was an extremely attentive father, who would like any question I had, he'd answer until I got bored. Nice. Um, he was really into like teaching and I was only with him usually weekends and half the summer because my parents were split up from when I was like three. Um, but I always enjoyed being around him. And then there was a big void suddenly when he died when I was a kid. Yeah, it sounds like he treated you sort of equal, like less like a kid. Um, less of, there were people around me who would do that. You treat like a little adult right. amongst the hippie, hippie kind of counterculture yeah. crowd. That happened a lot. He wasn't so much. He treated kids like kids, oh, okay. but he also kind of came down to kids. Like he was a bit of a Pied Piper in the neighborhood. Right. Whenever the ice cream truck came around, <laughs> it wasn't just me that would run out. Like all the kids would come out and look for Lionel because he would buy everybody <laughs> ice cream. That's awesome. Uh, and <laughs> he was just generally loved kids. And he was a little short guy and very kind of wiry and spry. So he would, I think he related to kids well. Right. Um, he also had some interesting kind of, one of the things I remember him ta talking about, which has always been an idea in my head about the way people socialize and persona, is he talked about having multiple faces and he actually visualized it like a, a big wheel that he'd bring around and bring in, the, bring in the personality. So he had like a job in North York and title searching department. Wow. Uh, so deeds and titles, yeah. right? But he also did it under a pseudonym. <laughs> Crazy! Whoa! Uh, it wasn't really him working there, yeah. uh, and then he was, you know, the uh, kind of doing black market stuff with the drug dealing and a biker and racing bikes at, at most port and weekends. Wow. Uh, but then getting involved, putting on suit and tie, and getting involved in local politics. Wow! So a very kind of multi personality, multi multi persona oriented. Yeah. And uh, I think just like that child level version of him was another persona for him that he right. could kind of put aside all the adult baggage and just be a fun times for kids. So you were saying it was like a real void when he died. What was yeah. it like with you well, and he your was, mom and stuff? Well, my mother tried, she was a single parent, so right. working hard. Um, she did her best, but I think like, not a knock against her, but Lionel was definitely the most emotionally available person I knew. Right. Uh, Arna was a, a bit of a workaholic and really busy with her things. And you know, just having to be at work all the time, so it wasn't around. I, we grew, we, we lived in a kind of a semi-communal house with our best friend and right. her family, so I didn't want for a, a parental style attention. I was even conscious as a kid, like, actually I'm kind of lucky, I got lots of adults around looking out for me. Right. But I, I didn't have your typical nuclear family environment at all. Right. right. Uh, it was more like an extended community. Uh, a lot of people with very diverse ideas, considering the kind of counterculture nature of things. I think in many ways, my mother 
was probably the most con most mainstream in, in that sense. Yeah. Um, which she was also tended to keep her own counsel when I was a kid, so I wasn't even aware of that as a kid. She wouldn't she wouldn't advocate her opinions. Okay. Th that often, um, and that ended up being a thing that we ended up having funny conflicts as a teenager, because that's when my more aggressive teenage opinions started clashing with her much more mainstream. Yeah, of course. <laughs> stance on things. Um, wow. So I mean it. I think uh, a lot of the a lot of the experiences I had are pretty typical for people who grew up with a, a parent. Right. Um, there's a lot of the wondering, like, and what's missing, and uh, looking for someone to fill that to a certain degree. Although I didn't do it as aggressively as some did, and there was always people around. But I, I remember, I definitely like both for male and female parental role models. As an adult, I always thought it was funny because I could see in other people like the stereotype of people being for example like dating their mother or dating their father right kind of thing and I would I would laugh because I don't I think which one <laughs> and, and I'd see that in the people that I get involved with that there I, I was always getting involved with excuse me cut that out uh, I was always getting involved with very different right kinds of people uh, looking for someone I would connect with yeah and uh, I think in some ways that made like finding the right match difficult um, it also meant that, like, I don't have, this has come up in terms of, like, talking with my wife about the possible having a family one day. I don't have, like, a little strong sense of how that works. Right. <laughs> no, I'm confused about it, too. Like, I'm at that point where yeah. we're discussing having a kid, and I'm like, uh, but I'm... We could probably figure it out, but, but I still I, don't feel secure. You know, I'm, <laughs> I, like, I'm going to counseling for that kind of stuff okay. just to see, like, am I prepared? Do I know? Like, I don't think anyone's know, prepared. Having a disability, I have, I have other things, like, right. I have to worry about if I'm going to, like actually drop the kid like people say that but that might actually be a possibility right. in my case so yeah we're i'm definitely preparing for that kind of thing too so well, I, I get what you're what you're at in terms of uh, not really being sure about that kind of stuff well and I've, I've never been formally like pigeonhole diagnosed but i've got a host of neurological non-typical neurological disputes and I, that's one of my worries because i'm not I'm not antisocial, but I prefer to be alone. Right. And, I, and my tolerance of small children is sort of like, it's great when they, they don't belong to me and they go away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't, I'm not great with high stress and I'm a little on the spectrum and I can handle stuff like this crowd and all that, but it, 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 does, it does fatigue me. And I, the idea of having a little kid running around, uh, <laughs> yeah. until I've generated some anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm sure I'll manage, but I don't know how conducive to being creative is going to be right right so yeah anyway problems to deal with if it happens but it it's the 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 unconventional upbringing and the absence of a father and all that it definitely leaves you uh feeling like you have to do extra work to to fill in gaps yeah i mean as a i think part of like i got into comics because i was more of an indoor kid like i couldn't play yeah. outside and that sort of thing do you think that getting your upbringing had anything to do with your attraction to comic books well not so much upbringing but because i was the oddball kid with the dyslexia right. i didn't have a great social network in public school and i ended up getting stuck in special ed uh in like grade three. Oh man and i spent uh, pretty much six different schools over seven years before i got out of high into high school so I was, I kind of did the same thing, mostly just because I did not enjoy being in school. I went home and I drew at my, my desk and it wasn't, you know, it didn't become a serious pursuit until high school. It was mostly just like a, a blowing off steam and it wasn't just comics, I would make stuff. I had a huge Lego collection. Uh, I would just sort of make things out of cardboard. Right. Um, 
I, I had a couple of local friends. I, had a, I was a kid across the street who was also a bit of a local social outcast, Alex, and we spent hung out a lot of times. Wow. Um, but it definitely like I think comics is is appealing to anyone who's going to be spending a lot of time on their own. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So exactly. Totally. It, it, it's welcome to, it's, it, and also I think that scientific interest, that disposition towards interesting, complex, hard problems to solve. I was listening to a podcast recently. They were talking about mathematicians aren't people who are better at math. They're people who are who enjoy the problems of math being hard. Right. Uh, and comics are similar as an artistic problem. Right. They're, they're, in art in general, I often tell this to art students that it's not about having some magical talent. It's about enjoying the process of, of solving it. Right. Uh, and the people who really thrive in arts or in comics are the ones who get off on that and enjoy that process. Nice. You usually enjoy having done it, not the doing. It's really difficult. Right. But once you're done, it's satisfying. Yeah. So There's a thing in your hand that you can see. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, getting there is sweat and blood, but yeah. Nice. So uh, getting back to your high school days and meeting uh, George Todorovsky and yeah. figuring out that you can do comics, I mean... We founded a club together. You did? Me and... Uh, I can't remember his names, but we five other students. Okay. Uh, and we all we founded Viking Comics. Wow. Which was because our thinking is Wexford had a school newspaper, and there were a lot of us into the comics. Like, why not a cool comics company? Yeah. So we got Mr. Marsh to give us like access to the fo- school copier, and we made comics together. I ended up doing art direction and covers for most of the books. That's awesome. That was so slow and fussy with my own series, but uh, I think George put out at least one or two v- volumes, and uh, Mike. Anderson, I think it was his last name, put a whole bunch. He was really productive. Um, Matthew slowly was in it. He did a few. There were some others. And we would we would print them and bring them down to the Dragon Ladies for sale and stuff and rack them. And if they sold, pocket the money. And nice. no one in school ever asked what happened to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but uh, that was fun. It was like our first comics. Um, and then we would go to the comic conventions and distribute the scenes and show our portfolios to the artists and stuff. Right. So, Is that how you got working for Marvel and DC? Kind of. Well, it's kind of it's kind of how I got inclination that I could. So I got kicked out of Wexford in grade 11. Oh, okay. I skipped too many classes. Um, and around then, the whole crew of us went to... This used to be at the, the, the old comic conventions in Toronto. We used to be at the... Uh, assembly, or I guess it was a cafeteria or gym for, at OCA, which is OCA and D now. Or uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and I, we all lined up in front of, I think it was Carl Potts. Okay. A <laughs> uh, 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 bunch of like well-known artists were around him. Ty was there, Ty Templeton. Yeah, of course. Uh, but a couple of like, uh, what's his name? He did Teen Titans for years. Uh, uh, sir- Marv Wolfman? No, it starts with a G. George Perez. George Perez. Yes, George Perez. Yeah. So he was there. Um, So we're a a bunch of us from Wexford are in a row. Okay. I think Mike was up front. And I don't think there was any like conscious hierarchy or like quality thing. I'm not even sure this is true. But we managed to like subsequently just impress them more and more as each one came up with a portfolio. (laughs) That's awesome. So by the time it got to me and George at the end, and me and George had a friendly rivalry. We would like go away at the night and draw stuff and show each other the next day. Yeah, George Todorovsky, not George Perez, for those following right. along. Right, Todor- did I say Perez? <laughs> no, 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 but uh, before okay. you mentioned Perez, right, right. so I wanted to make so sure people knew. George Todorovsky and I would, would, would like compare notes and then go away and try to one-up each other. Right. Um, so we were kind of 
actively competing in a friendly way, trying to get better. Um, so we were just showing Potts our stuff, and I think by two or three of, uh, of Gone Thin, he'd start handing out cards. Not like we were ready today, but like keep in touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, you guys totally. are clearly up to something. Keep, keep, keep stay in touch. Yeah. So that the way when I walked away with this really, and like both George and uh, my portfolio again, this could have just been a cumulative effect. But at that point, he was passing them around the table. So we were getting Perez and everyone else going, "Oh my goodness!" Uh, so at that point, I feel like, okay, this is something that maybe in a little couple of years I could do. Right, right. Uh, and. So I kept at it. I got kicked out. I, I got a part-time job, and and kept drawing. I got a black and white book out with Caliber, with a local cart comic shop owner called Nature the Beast. Caliber's the original publisher of the Crow. If yeah, you, Caliber if you Press. Know. Yeah, uh, with uh, with uh, Gary Reed. Yeah. Um, and uh, they put in a couple issues. It was my first falling out with a writer. He wanted, he wanted to do this horrific scene with one of my favorite characters, Breast getting bitten off by a demon, which I just like, I'm not drawing that. No, and we couldn't agree on changing it, so uh, okay. I walked away. Um, but it, at that point, I'd gotten really, so similar thing, I'd gotten the kind of feedback from that book that felt like, all right, this is maybe something I could now pitch Marvel DC in my work. What was it called, the original book? Nature of the Beast. Nature of the Beast. And there's, you know, for issue one and two is out there. Richard nice. Pace did the cover for the first one. Oh, nice. Uh, and a backup story. We were, we were peers coming up at the same time, too. We used to see each other at conventions all the time. Well, yeah. still do, but like when we were trying to get in. Yeah. Um, and uh, so based on that, I, I put together some of the stuff from Nature of the Beast and some new pages I'd done as samples, and I sent a pile of them to DC and one to Marvel because they did a few books I was kind of interested in, but I wasn't really aiming for them. I was looking for what it hadn't become yet, but was going to become Vertigo. That, right. All the Karen Berger, Stanage yeah. stuff. Um, so all the editors that were working with Karen Berger on those books that became part of that line, I, all sent, I sent them all packages. This is when you could mail in stuff easy. Yeah. There wasn't a problem. Yeah. I got asked by Karen and Stuart uh, Imminent? No, not Imminent. Is it Imminent? I think it's his last name. Uh, to do tests. Okay. And that was my... I wasn't like going to work for him or anything, but they sent me a Neil Gaiman script that Jill Thompson was drawing. Wow. And that was one of my first experiences. It, he kind of spoiled me. That script for Jill was so amazing. Yeah. So beautifully written. I, I love Neil Gaiman. One of my well, top, him well, and Alan Moore are my top writers. So I've since learned he kind of customizes his scripts for the artists right. based on what they like. Yeah. So I think Jill's a very similar inclination to me because he had these lovely, elaborate descriptions for the panels wow. that just paints it for you. You don't have to think about what to draw. Yeah. And not in the kind of didactic way that Alan's Moore's yeah. notorious for, but just really kind of like. Fireside storytelling. Yeah. You just—it's beautiful. And you still feel like you have enough room to have like your own interpretations. Sure, but it's so clear yeah. when you're done that you know exactly what you want to do. Right, right. So, uh, and then, uh, so I did those. I got kind of weird feedback. I was using a lot of hatching. There was a scene uh, where Neil, uh, the Sandman is crying in the dreaming, and so the dreaming is crying. It's raining because he's lost his love. Right. Um, it was funny, too, because I saw Jill's pages later on, and we'd, we'd hit the exact same page layout and design. It. Like, the script was so clear. Right, yeah. We basically <laughs> did the same thing. Uh, so, uh, the... Uh, but I'd use all this hatching for the... When there's lightning going, it would start black and white, but when there's not lightning, I'd have all this hatching for the rain and the, to hide the crying. And I liked it. 
but I guess it wasn't really they were into oh, too busy, okay. and they gave me a weird note. I knew Vince Locke from doing Caliber because he did the old uh, Dead. What was it called again? The zombie comic. Uh, uh, Dead World. Dead World. Okay. Uh, and he did a lot of hatching with Ballpoint. Yeah. That was his choice, medium of choice, which I dug, but it was totally not where I was going. Yeah. And so there was like, you sh we we don't not sure about the hat. You should look at Vince Locke. And <laughs> I was like, what? You don't get me at all. What the hell? Yeah, yeah, wow. <laughs> so, I've been okay, and they sent me in more scripts to do tests on. And back then, they were paying for the tests. So, oh. okay, I'll do more tests. I was doing that was Shade the Changing Man pages. Wow. Um, so that was fun. But then I get a call out of the blue from Mark McLuhan at Marvel Comics. Okay. Who Bobby Chase was the person I'd sent the work to at Marvel, and she'd passed it to him. They'd had an artist uh, walk away from a book. Halfway through, yeah, and they had like, we need someone to draw this now. Yeah, it's always that's always. You got ten days to do nineteen pages. Yeah, want to do it? <laughs> and it's like, so it's not a test. Nope, full page rate. We'll wow. pay you two hundred bucks. Two hundred actually two fifty a page, black and white art, which is good. What book was it? Do you remember? Uh, Nightbreed. Nightbreed. Wow. Cal Clyde Barker's Nightbreed, um, and I took over for uh, what's his name again? He did. Uh, I'm not blanking all the names. It's okay. Okay, anyway. So, it was a werewolf story. Uh, and I, I broke my own record. I've never gone this fast before. I did. I, I took nine days to do 19 pages. Whoa. Uh, gave myself a flu doing it, but successfully turned it in. Uh, All-nighters. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was, I was getting sick halfway through, so I started po po pounding back codeine. So, I was pretty flying high. <laughs> draw, 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 draw! <laughs> um, and it, it worked. It was not like... I, you look at it too, and you know, often the rush stuff. There are things that I'm glad about not having to do for mainstream comics anymore, and one of them is the deadlines. Right. But the flip side is the deadlines forced you to be much more economic and efficient with your work. Right. And some of those pages, I I, I really like for their cleanliness and clarity. So, but anyway, they were impressed. I was kind of impressed. Uh, they gave me another issue uh, of the book, and then they offered me a series. Whoa. Of like twenty. I have next to no experience. Exactly. Here's a monthly. You want to do that? I'm like, oh, okay, sure. So I got Saint Sinner, uh, which was a new. They were doing a Barkerverse. They were calling it. Clyde Barker created a bunch of concepts. Yeah. Explicitly for Marvel. And this was like right in the '90s, right? Where yeah. People were trying to throw whatever they could at the wall because yeah. it was during the boom, right? And, well, and, and this was right before Vertigo happened, and then Vertigo got announced, and so they rebranded the Razorverse uh, to compete with Vertigo. Right. And they they told me straight up, we want this book to be kind of like Sandman, which is where I was coming when I started working on yeah. Saint Sinner. But then, so and I was working with Elaine Lee, who's an amazing writer, and I had some great conversations with her on the phone. I got to go to New York, and like young kid coming into the comics, Elaine took me to meet uh, 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 Michael Kaluta, right. at his studio, and uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Did <laughs> the Frankenstein comic who died recently? Oh, uh, Bernie Wrightson. Bernie Wrightson, thank you. I have a problem with names. Thanks for your help. Yeah. Uh, Bernie Wrightson met him at a bar. Okay. And he was like talking about other pros and stuff. So I'm like, those kids just sitting and sucking it up in the corner. Um, but then we started working on the book, and the editors kept messing with it, was the best way to put it. Uh, they thought they knew better. But they kept doing things like putting more action scenes in. Um, and they're like, have you read Sandman? Yeah, I don't yeah. Know, man. Yeah. Uh, and then the thing that really got my. It wasn't the worst thing that happened, but it really started making me lose faith a bit in what they were trying to do. They started putting gimmick covers on the books, oh. like Foil and Boss. And how involved was Clive Barker? Not, not terribly. Not terribly. So we could have, I think, 
in hindsight, because of a few things that happened, we could have tried to involve him more. Right. But as it was, he had an assistant who occasionally conferred with the editor, and that was about it. Yeah, okay. And then there was things like, so on the first issue, I had suggested Rissening written on the top of the first page. Right. Nine Inch Nails, yeah. New World Order, yeah. for the first issue. And the editors wanted to cut it. Oh. And then Clive, at a signing, was sitting between Elaine and Mark, the editor, and he saw the black and white art and thought, oh, that's cool, because he knew uh, yeah. Trent's. Yeah. Trent, uh, is it Trent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Trent Rister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, um, and Elaine went, oh, yeah, but they're taking that out. It's like, put that back in. <laughs> oh, so, if we'd been smart, we should have, like, every problem we had, we should have gone past Clive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he would have, like, run, 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 run for us. Yeah. But he, as it was, we got micromanaged a bit. They kept messing with what the book was about and just try to put more action into it and gimmicky covers. And I was getting frustrated. And the deadlines were killing me. I was not prepared. more sick. Not yet, but I was falling behind endlessly. Okay. Uh, and I just wasn't, I, didn't, I wasn't experienced enough. Right. And I didn't know how to, how to make deadlines work. The reality is I know now also, having been around the business, almost never, no one goes for more than five or six issues and meets deadlines. Right. You know, especially not at the level of detail I was trying to do. Yeah. So, inking and penciling your own work on a monthly book is like a recipe for disaster and burnout. But uh, the, I didn't know. And I kept having issues with the editor and that got into like more personal conflict. And eventually I, I had to bail from that. That was too much. So I think issue five, I rushed. It was funny because I was, I was uh, stressed out and I was sitting like halfway through or a third of the way through issue five and I had a conversation with the editor on the, on the phone where up until then, every time I'd said like, you know guys, I, I don't know if I'm gonna be able to the deadline. I don't really understand if you wanna get someone else to do this. Yeah. I think I said like three times yeah. and they would keep saying, no, no, it's okay, how much more time do you need? Uh, it's all right, we'll give it, and being really nice. Yeah. And I thought, okay, great, these guys are cool, cool. they understand. And then the next, it went from that to on issue five, we totally know you're just sleeping this shit off and not really blah, blah, blah. Oh, and like, man. whoa, wow. that just went bipolar on me. Yeah. Um, and I was really, one of the accusations really cut because my girlfriend had just broken up with me. Oh. And she had been kind of like stealthily moving her stuff out for the week beforehand. And I hadn't noticed because my head was in the table so much. Yeah. Um, so just this idea that I was like not paying, it, not doing the work, when really what I was is doing all the work all the time and not paying attention to my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, I got pissed off and I went and drew the rest of the book size as in a week Oh man! and sent it off and they didn't even notice <laughs> 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 and I just quit because uh, you know, I was, I was, at the point I was just pissed off with the editor and I ended up working at Marvel off and on for a couple of years as a freelancer but that was like my one attempt to do a monthly that I sort of put off the idea after that Right. Um, and within about I think it was about four and a half years in total I worked for them in the end it, it got to the point where there's some stuff that I did for Marvel that I kind of like, but there's nothing that I am ex actually proud of and want to put forward as, this is something I did. What were some of the greatest hits and misses? Like, I really like the unpublished Ghostwriter I did with Warren Ellis. Okay. Whoa, but notably cool. unpublished. Yeah. <laughs> so no one ever saw it other than when I finally put the pages on the internet. Oh, so okay. the, it, 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 got, it was a file story. The book got canceled before it came out. Oh. So, and I wrote one with a friend of mine, Scott Andrews. Right. Uh, and drew that. They both were file stories that got canned mm -hmm. uh, or never used. And then uh, I really like the art I did on a Morbius living vampire with um, oh, I'm blanking his name. <laughs> I did I did Muse with him years later. 
Uh, oh, it'll come to me later. Sorry, okay. dude. Um, he's a cool guy. He's an editor now, too. Uh, and it was his first, his Morbius story was his first gig at Marvel. Okay. It'll come to me if I'm not thinking about it for a minute. Um, there were some issues there. I had some, I, what grew into dislike for how Bob, Bobby Chase was running things. Right. My, my big problem, with the exception of one editor uh, at Marvel, was most of the editors were really project managers. Okay. I didn't really feel like they were there to make the work better. They were there to make sure deadlines were met and things moved. Yeah, yeah. And I understand it's kind you. of, no, and well, it was more brand management. Right. So it wasn't even so much they didn't help me, but their, their goals and their agendas were very different than what I wanted in the work. Um, and then there were issues with, so I did another, well, I didn't do, I almost did another Morbius story, and that was like the biggest miss. So I got the script following up the short. And it was a sh this, it was a week late, so I had three weeks. Wow. And I start reading the script, and it starts off, so Morbius has had a freak out because he thinks he's drained some street sand his blood in the hospital. <laughs> oh no! My God! Runs into a closet, leaves the hospital in a panic, goes to a diner, calls his girlfriend because he needs emotional support. Um, so they're in the diner. He's, you know, I can't even remember. I don't know if I killed Vic Santa Claus. Um, diner waitress randomly, and I remember it was pretty damn random. She's sort of like filling their coffee and tells them about how there's an embassy across the street from this nation. I was never clear if they were like, Russian or Asian or just communist Asian or some sort of ambiguous other right. American other uh, country across the street. They've got a woman who's a high society lady there who's basically a prisoner until she's going to be sent home to the home country, homeland, where she'll be buried under her own possessions in a, like a materialist version of stoning Whoa. for having had an affair with a Westerner. Oh man. <laughs> she's telling her the, 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 us this because she heard it from the handmaids who were having breakfast there. Oh, wow, so wow. I'm reading the script going, wait a minute, the handmaids are free to have breakfast at the diner, but she's, what? How's that happen? And they're speaking in English. Okay, sure. Keep reading. Get to the next scene. Moby's decides she's going to free her. That's his job. He's going to make good on killing Santa by freeing this lady somehow. Right. Helping her out. So we need your my girlfriend to distract the, the guard at the gate. There's no description to the gate at first. Right. Uh, so we have her walking up. Revlon girl, here to make up the lady going to the foreign country, da 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 Oh, man. A little bit tacky. But, uh, and then, so the guy comes out of the guard booth, and Morbius jumps out from behind the bushes surrounding the embassy, which means he's already inside. <laughs> so he comes back out and pokes the guy in the corner of the eye. Yeah? And then he, he's a doctor, right? Right. Turns to his girlfriend and says, there's a, I think it was, he said it was a vein or an artery or a nerve. In the corner of the eye, you poke it in the corner of the eye, it harmlessly stops their heart. <laughs> it makes them pace them out, pass out. It's like, all right. <laughs> and it just keeps getting worse. Yeah, when it's yeah. not just being dumb. It was actually kind of offensive. Right. Um, very shades of sexism and racism. And that was sort of a thing that I kept confronting. And I'm, I grew up in a really radically liberal environment, and or, or actually far left, and was very interested in putting kind of more progressive ideas about things in books right. that I was working on. Yeah. So being asked to draw this stuff always rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, which added to that whole, like, I'm not really proud of presenting this work. Yeah. So this game, one of those, the, the breaking point books, it was right around when I started Burning Bridges. Okay. Where I can't draw this. Yeah. And I thought at one point, like, I, I was just physically unable to sit down and lay it out. It was, it was bugging me. Richard used to brag about being able to lay out anything. Right. He didn't care what it was. No. So I called him up said, Richard, I'll pay you my share if you lay this out for me and I'll just make it pretty. Like, I'll finish it. Yeah. Uh, and so, all right, he takes a script. He had it for like a week. 
calls me back and is like, I thought you were exaggerating, but this this is not salvageable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up like commiserating on the phone, like and what to do. I went to a studio. I called Bobby from a studio and I wasn't sure, but I pretty much decided by the time I got on the phone, like, I'm just backing out. <laughs> wow. And she's, and she's like, no, no, we can make it work. Like, that implies there's something to work with. Yeah. I don't want to be associated with a script. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, I wonder what happened to the guy that wrote it. A, a woman. Oh, oh. I forget her name, but she was a f sort of connected somehow to the Marvel hierarchy. Okay. So she, I think she was, I, I, I forget the details, but she's well ensconced. It got drawn by somebody who, if I remember looking back, that person drew a few issues. Um, and it's when I look at it, it's as kind of awful as I remember. So I'm glad I didn't put my name on it. Wow! But uh, it definitely guaranteed I wasn't going to get more work from Bobby. Right. Um, and I kind of did that two or three more times and stopped getting work from Marvel entirely. Yeah, yeah, that'll happen, I guess. Yeah, I ended up picking up a couple of jobs from DC, and then after a couple of bankruptcies, I worked at Marvel again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I decided really, I did a book called Beauties in the early aughts. Oh. And that was okay. Um, Carl, that's his first name. He wrote Kershaw? the movie. No, not Kershaw. That's uh, a much younger guy. Okay. Uh, I think that's his first name because he also wrote the Moody thing and the and the Mobius one I was mentioning right. earlier. Okay. But anyway, that also had weird issues. Bill Jemis decided that there would be his quote: "No pig sex in my comics." <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, if you ever get Muties number six and read it, you'll notice that he, by his instruction, there is much more graphic pig sex in your brain, thanks to the way we had to depict it in the comic. Wow. Uh, yeah. But he didn't see it that way. Okay. Um, and that was kind of my last venture with Marvel and DC. All right, all right. Because just the, the, the kind of, it can be fine for people if you really love doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it really depends on who you're working with, like editors and right. that stuff. But it's it's a, a problematic uh, corporate part. It of can business. get political and like. It can get political. Uh, for me, it wasn't. I mean, there was political issues personally. Yeah. Some of the content, but it was more just like, what are your goals in making comics? I wanted to make something that I that's kind of basically like legacy. Right. Right. I mean, it seems pretentious, but I don't believe in an afterlife. So this stuff is what I'm leaving behind. Right. And I don't want to leave garbage behind. Right. So half-ass stuff for deadlines. Yeah, you don't just want to be a jobber for no. DC and Marvel when you can make your yeah. own stuff, right? Well, and that's the challenge. It's yeah. difficult to make your own stuff. It's really hard to to generate some sort of basic subsistence income. Right. Uh, it doesn't happen from comics if you're not getting one of those jobs. And even those jobs don't pay that great. Right, no. So I, I mostly do illustration and I teach art. Right. And that pays the bills. Yeah. And then I do comics purely to satisfy myself and, yeah. and get to write and tell stories. Nice. Um, and if... I'm happy that mostly I get them to pay for themselves in the sense of printing. Right. When I make a book, I can usually work it out so that it costs, covers its costs. Right. And that's good. Um, if I could ever get it to do more, build an audience that buys enough that it makes me some more, that would be awesome. Nice. But I'm not really banking on it anymore. So you're doing a lot of memoir stuff now, though, too. Yeah. Like this, uh, this Dream Life. Happens you get old. Yeah, I know. You're working <laughs> out volume two. So is Dream that Life isn't memoir, though. No. It's not biography at all. It, oh. it does come, it's kind of rooted in a, in, when I started doing it, it was definitely the idea was to tell stories that resemble the experiences of people I know. Right. But none of them are real. Right. It's okay. all fiction. Okay. Yeah. But like the feelings and stuff happen yeah. from your own life and that yeah. kind of thing. And people I know. And is this is this sort of what you were envisioning when you struck out on your own and wanted to do independent stuff? I think or? I probably started off thinking more along the lines of fantasy and science fiction, uh, which is what I, I read a lot. Right. Not just in comics, but in novels and stuff. Um, 
And I still do that. Like, Dream Life has lots of magic realism in it. Right, and, and Dracula, Son of the Dragon is... That's more Mark's thing, though. I co-wrote okay. and I rewrote, but okay. that's really Mark's baby. Okay. It was his concept. I do have a Dracula idea. Right. Not a Dracula idea, a vampire idea okay. that I want to do one day. And I have a science fiction idea I want to do one day. Right. But they're... Uh, and not just one, but a dominant one that I've actually written down. Um, but more and more, I find it very appealing to just tell stories without a lot of uh, genre pretense. Right. And just sort of tell human stories. Yeah, because human stories, like, you can get into, like, the real meat of what it's like to live in the world right now, right? Like, yeah, there's stuff although there. I think that there's room in genre to do that well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of pop genre doesn't always do it so well. It's too busy kind of trying to wow people. Right. Um, and attention spans get in the way of stuff that takes a little while to develop, which a lot of kind of deep personal internal stuff does. Yeah. And some people often re resort to doing it through exposition, which can work, but I don't think it's the strongest way to do it in a comic. Right. Uh, one, of the, one of the challenges in dream life that I gave myself was to try to do, I, I said, no thought balloons, no caption boxes. Right. Strong emphasis on internal Dial, like what's going on in people's heads, but I have to do it entirely through pantomime. Right. And it's almost like, like a silent comic, kind of. Well, yeah, it's lots of dialogue. But yeah, the, the, it, get, avoiding uh, explaining things, more show, less tell. Less exposition, more yeah. show. Yeah. Show it through the image. If you can't show it through the image, don't and, put it and in. And try to imply it. And also be open to it. And I kind of enjoy the misreading, I'm using air quotes, right. uh, that comes with uh, people kind of getting their own version. They project their experience onto something that you're not explicit about and come with their interpretation. And that, I think, makes work richer. Right. Uh, same way novels, because they don't have the pictures, leave all this room for the story to develop. Comics, I think, have a number of ways. They, there is a potential in comics to become so didactic that it's a passive reading experience, like a film for, for a viewer. Right. There's very little for them to put in themselves. They're just consuming it. Right. Um, but I really like it when they don't do that yeah. and they leave a lot of room for the reader to project into meaning and interpretation and technically maybe get things wrong but still maybe come up with a story they liked which is fine it's the same way you know really good abstract art can work where it's all about the reader or the viewer uh, interpreting yeah. bringing their own experience yeah, to it. yeah. and my, I say this in my art class a lot with uh, drawing and not worrying about being perfect and trying to explicitly render everything exactly. Anytime you can leave things for the viewer to do part of the job, odds are, pretty much every time, even if they're not an experienced creator, they're better at it than, in your, your imagination than you are. Right. They're going to do a better, more elaborate job filling in the, and coming with interesting twists yeah. than you could possibly do. Like, just think of conspiracy theorists, which is nine times out of ten, someone going there, filling in implied blanks and stuff that didn't happen. Totally. And coming with these amazing elaborate totally. stories and getting head buzzes off of it. Yeah, I yeah. know that's why people love it. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah. getting that tingle up the back of the brain. Yeah, yeah. They're loving yeah. it. They're having a great time. The hard pro problem is that they believe it's true. That's, that's an issue. But that's what we're great at. Right. And as storytellers, I think we're, we're doing... We're batting our best when we leave a lot of room in the work for that to happen. And then people really get excited because they, they be, that's when they feel like they own it. How did you get the gig at Sin Studio? And tell me about teaching. And like Actually, uh, Kelly Tyndall okay. was teaching comics there. And he brought me in first as a consult, as a, as a guest uh, for his comic class. Okay. So as a guest pro. And then I started talking to the administrator and asked him, because I was thinking about teaching. Right. Uh, anticipating that freelancing was getting a little bit old. I yeah. still freelance, but I don't want to have to like bank on it. Right. Um, let me know if you have any questions.
And uh, speaking of legacy, I mean, yeah. teaching can be that legacy. Yeah, that, you know. it definitely is it's very rewarding and that idea of like leaving something behind. Every time, every class I've got 10 to thir uh, 20 people that I'm sharing something with. Right. And they go out in the world and hopefully do something constructive with it. It's awesome. So, and I, I, I didn't have the best experience with school, so it's nice to do, teach the way I would have liked to have been taught mm -hmm. and to be the kind of teacher that I never had. Is teaching in Montreal, because it has such a reputation for like culture and art and you know a French sensibility, is it is it easier to teach in a in a place that's? Well, more I've never taught in Toronto, so I don't know. Okay, but I do, I don't think so. Okay, I think the cultural stuff aspect of Montreal, as someone who's spent almost as long in Montreal as I, I grew up in here, in, right? Uh, I think it's a little overplayed. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Sin's also a very bilingual with an Anglo skew right. uh, school, so that's going to influence a bit. There are definitely cultural differences in the francophone community and the Anglo community, uh, uh, and the allophone community, which is, is Montreal is a huge immigrant community now, not as big as Toronto, but it's getting there, and so that gives us interesting diversity of voices and stuff. But I don't think that that really. I think on the, when teaching comes down to it, individual teachers' pedagogy. Okay. is the thing that really drives that. And since it's an interesting school because they don't dictate that so much. Each teacher kind of brings their own style to things. Most of us are working pros. Yeah. So as opposed and that's to like for you because you can shape it how you want. Yeah. Right? And, and, and we tend to bring our own ideas about it. We're not coming out of a, a system that teaches you how to teach uh, and then applying that. We're, we're figuring out, well, this is what worked for me. Here's what you should do in terms of teaching students who want to do what we do. Right. Um, we focus on concept art. We have a diploma and a full-time program on, on concept art. So there's a whole, I don't, I don't deal with that as much because most of my classes are more traditional. Right. But I get a lot of like, my classes often end up being electives for the <laughs> folks in the full-time uh, concept art program. Nice. Uh, which means they do my homework less, yeah. but that's okay. I, I don't really care so much about the homework. Um, but uh, I think the people coming in have a very interesting, it's not like university or college where there's a lot of money and a lot of expectation and uh, stuff banking on it. It's more people who want to do this, not because they feel like they should do it. Kind of like continuing ed or, yeah. you know, this is like your third hobby or yeah, like yeah. something you want to do. Or it's a career and you're looking to up your skills. Up your skills, yeah. Uh, I got a lot of that. We got a lot of people working in studios who just want to draw better. Right. Um, and we got people who are into like concept art. There's a lot of crossover in the Venn diagram with comics. Right. So we got a lot of people who are into film and gaming who really like the idea of comics and they come to take my Making Comics class. Right. So a lot of them come away and we're like, this is a little harder than I thought. Maybe we won't do that. But <laughs> That's okay. It's you know that's kind of the learning process. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that the location is such a big thing. Other than Quebec, definitely puts a higher value on and priority on education. Okay. Socially. Nice. Yeah, I would say so. Man. Like you just look at the way they fund it, even with the cuts they've had, yeah. the way they fund education compared to what Ontario does. Yeah, it's way so, more. Much more. Yeah. Shows in our taxes too, though. Exactly. <laughs> you also have a sort of prominence in the Canadian scene because you found it sequential and that became a thing. Like you were the first like Canadian news. Yeah. You were like a CBR for Canada. I, I guess. You know what I mean? So how did that come to be? Why did you want to do that? I was hosting the Montreal country Comic Jams. Okay. And we had a jam blog. And so I'd post like once a month right. with the jam. And I, was, I wanted to start posting some dyslexic. I wanted to start posting regularly to work on my writing, right? To work on my spelling, yeah, and grammar and all that. Because I was saying I got to become a writer. Nice. Working with writers is frustrating, so I want to be my own writer, right? 
So I needed a venue to write every day. Yeah. So I got this blog. I'll start writing every day. What do I do? I don't know. I'll, I'll scroll through the, the feeds and find all the Canadian-related stuff and add it to the Jam blog. <laughs> but then, it, so it was called Non Sequitur. Yeah. The Jam blog was Non Sequitur. Yeah. I remember that. So I, after a, a week or so of doing that, I like, we need a better name. And I, I kept the Non Sequitur blog, but I started a new one. And this was right in like the same month that uh, uh, Journalista started at, at the Journal. Oh yeah, Journalista. So that kind of also like, yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing and there's a really great role model for how to format it. Right. And then I went, all right, well, non-sequential. Yeah. Bang, there's my name. Yeah. And um, I did that for about two years and then Brian came in, he was doing another blog. Nice. Uh, kind of more collector-oriented but still Canadian-oriented stuff. Right. And he was writing me and commenting on the things, and I said, "Hey, you know, I can't comment as post as often as I'd like. Do you want to share it? Jump in and share some." As he's become, he's actually got more posts than I do at this point. Right. Um, and then we've had like a about twenty different contributors over the years, but no one who sticks around terribly long. It's mostly just been me and Brian uh, in terms of long haul. But then whoever we can bring in uh, to contribute, he for a while there. He was actually hiring interns and paying them yeah. to post. And it's not just news. Like People are promoting their own work on the blog sometimes and stuff, too. Um, I occasionally post my own stuff, but I feel uncomfortable about doing yeah. it. So I don't do it very often. Yeah. Um, definitely on the on the Facebook page, there's more Slack. But Sam Noir and I were just talk, joking about this. Like We kind of feel like every time we post something about us, there he is. Uh, every time we post something, we have to post 10 other things advice other people. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, uh, and... And then and people who come in, there have been people who've come in who are creators, and I don't mind. It's just such a small community. So the people motivated to do this often are also contribute creating. Right. So that's the normal, it's, a, it's too, too few. I remember there was a Revenue Canada report on how many people declared themselves as professional comic artists in right. Canada. It was like 100. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> 200. Yeah. Something small and sad. Yeah. And that, you know, you add the hobbyist to that, it's really not a big number. So. The fact that there's an intrinsic conflict of interest. Yeah. What are you going to do? How are you going to report your own stuff? Yeah. Uh, so eventually, I, I only hold people to the thing that if you're going to join the Facebook page or you're going to join the blog, just make sure you're not just posting your own stuff. Right. Yeah. And if someone does that for, after too long, eventually I'll give them the boot. Right. Just like now it's, you know, if you can't make the effort to, to talk about your neighbor, at least. Right. You know. Right. Uh, what I've always wished is that we'd have at least one contributor on either the blog or the fa Facebook page from every major community across Canada. Yeah, that'd be and awesome. And if we could add to that like a nice representation in terms of like genders and ethnic backgrounds. You know, I would really love to, I was just talking to uh, Brendan about this, like trying to find out if, I know there's a few interesting First Nation creators, and I was wondering like if we could find anyone in that community well, who would want to report on it. Talk to like Hope from Moonshot and stuff. Like the guy, the, they did Moonshot, the uh, Aboriginal anthology right? of comic creators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they have a list, I'm sure. Probably. Yeah. So, getting getting people who are in the community so know better. Right. To to so local communities and other sub sub communities, getting them to contribute and, and share what's going on. Um, I like that it's expanded into a magazine. I mean, it's yeah. a digital magazine. Brendan's basically running it and using your name. Yeah. Was that something that he wanted to do and he approached you? Kind or? of. I did a print magazine for TCAF two, three years in a row okay. years ago. Okay. And we avail we had it's available for download on, for free on the site. Okay. But it was something that was ad driven, and it it became an issue where finding a printer who would do it for a cost that worked for us that didn't mean I was like spending all my time trying to find advertisers. Right. 
became a real problem. We ended up having a, 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 a bit of a joke mess up with the last, the third issue, where the printer, I said, it's an eight and a half by 11 book. And they somehow interpret that as eight and a half and eleven folded over. Oh, okay. So when I went to pick up the books the day of TCAF, there were these tiny little zines uh, in the print you can't even read. Oh, and like, oh no. Uh, so, and then and it had been doable, but a lot of work to get the few advertisers we had to pay for it. Right. And I thought that worked, but not something I wanted to make a job. And it was turning into a job if I kept doing it. So I kind of put that to bed. Always with the thing that would be nice to do, but I don't have the energy to do. And then Brendan came forward as someone who, he had an idea, he wanted to do a magazine, he liked our name, he liked what we'd done with Sequential, he'd seen the, the old one. Right. So he explicitly said, I'd like to relaunch that. Uh, I want to do a thing, kind of a spin-off of what I'm doing with the wiki uh, and, and the awards, and do a, a magazine that focuses on it. And his model was always maybe print, but definitely digital uh, through Gumroad and all that, right. and pay what you can. Um, and I, you know, I gave him some basic parameters of things that I wanted to make sure we did and didn't do. Like I, Sequential's always had a bias. We don't ignore the mainstream scene, but they don't need our help. Right, yeah. They get lots of attention. Totally. So I try to favor the indie crowd and the up and coming and even like little jams and zines and stuff. Which he totally does. Like, yeah. That's his whole thing. Um, so I said like, yeah, that's, that's good. You can talk about, like Chip's a buddy of mine. Mm -hmm. Talk about Chip if you want to, but he doesn't need a lot of attention. He's yeah. got Marvel posting for him. Yeah, um, exactly. So, and then the, 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 what I was just talking about, trying to make an effort to bring in different voices and, and different genres too, not just superior stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but if you're, if you know, those are my, my requirements within that, have at it. Nice. You know, um, I, I, and he wanted to know if I wanted to be involved. I'm like, I would like to be consulted, but I really don't have the time to do more. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. my energies have gotten, I basically, after spending a lot of time doing that kind of stuff, yeah. I realized that I was splitting my energy too much. Right. So, around when I started working on Dream Life, I kind of started shifting my focus just to my own work yeah, for a yeah, while. Totally. Um, and between teaching and that, that's been my focus for the last nice. eight years. Nice. And you're working on Dream Life Volume 2 right now. I've just started laying it out. I'm about 28 pages in. And the, Dra Dracula, you mentioned Dracula, Son of the Dragon. Yeah. I'm holding in my hand the first proof. Okay. Which I will not be using this printer. I won't diss them by naming them on air. Okay. But they came back. It came back unsatisfactory. So uh, I'm looking at some other options. Okay. Still trying to solve that problem. Okay. How will I print this? And this is like a Kickstarter-only exclusive thing. Okay. I don't know for sure how it's going to happen outside of it's going in serial and revolver. All right. As a black and white. Uh, but the color trade is kind of. I'm going to leave it to Mark because he also is going to continue doing the story with other artists. Right. So I'm going to let him find a, a home for all of them. Right. Um, so I'm not sure who's going to be publishing that public version. But if you were a very, very kind backer who's been very patient six years ago, <laughs> thank you very much for not getting mad at us too much. Um, this got delayed a lot because of health problems. I found out I was diabetic when we were doing the Kickstarter. Oh, man. And I had to change all my work habits. Yeah. And I did not anticipate how much that would mess things up. Right. Um, so it really did. Um, but that's done, and uh, now that it's out of the way, I'm going to be getting full back time back into getting Revolver out more regularly and doing Dream Life and, and Bastard's Tale and some other things that I've been brewing for a while. But nice. 
aren't ready for talking about. So if people want to follow what you're doing, they want to see what's happening with this, uh, drag, Son of the Dragon or Dreamlight Volume 2, where do they go online? SalGoodSam.com is okay. the, the shortest answer to that question. Okay. Everything I do is linked to that site somehow. Uh, there, there's uh, links to my social media, to my Facebook, to all my teaching sites. I have sites for both the commerce course and the drawing classes I teach. Nice. Is that um, once a year, twice a year, if you want to register for that? The class? Yeah. We run four semesters a year. Dynamic drawing so far, we'll see. Like I, I haven't actually taken a vacation from teaching for like four years. Whoa. Uh, but it's, it's, I only do it once a week. Yeah. So it's not really like something I feel the need to right away. Right. Uh, but it, it, I've been running dry, dynamic drawing every semester. And then we currently go back and forth between making comics and intro cartooning. The cartooning is just a drawing class. Making comics is really like a writing class. Okay. We don't we draw in it, but I don't teach drawing in it. It's more like comic page design and how to. Would it be similar to like Ty's comic book boot camp in the way that's structured or structured? I haven't taken his whole class, okay. so I can't say. I sat in on one session of his class once. Right. Um, we're definitely different stylistically. Right. Of I course. cannot come close to matching his energy levels. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not an experienced stand-up comedian, so I too try to make it entertaining. But it's a very dense class. I had university students come in and take it and say that it could be a university course, right. which I'm not sure if you take that as a compliment or <laughs> probably both <laughs> <Yeah>. at once. <laughs> I definitely know that what ends up happening a lot is people take making comics, thinking comics are going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, totally. And and those class, those students, they get the impression in the first get to know you class of who those are going to be. And I'm usually right that about half of them stop showing up about halfway through the course. Right. Yeah. Usually when it comes time to actually start writing. Yeah. Because that's the thing everyone finds difficult. And I do try to teach you how to do that and make it as easy as possible. Right. But for everybody, like even for me starting to write, it's a daunting venture. And like, it's the first time they have to sit down and write a three-page story. Yeah. A lot of them are like, ah. Brain yeah. freeze. And how much you gonna describe, how much you gonna leave to the artist, like that's kind of a challenge too. Well they're usually their own artists. Okay. I do, oh, okay. it's, it's an option for them to collaborate in the class, but most of them are uh, writing and drawing their own stuff. Oh, okay, good, cool. All right, well, thanks for coming in and doing this, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, seeing all the rest of the stuff that you got going on. Thank you. I hope it was nice worth to meet your you time. In time and person. Yeah, totally, totally. This is the first time we're meeting in person, uh, which, is, which is great, I, I love this. Cool. All right, man. We'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. Ciao. This has been Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one -on -one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberi. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.